So if you can, uh, if you have your a Bible with you, uh, if you can open it up to uh, Genesis chapter 15, or if you, uh, we're, we're going to be looking at this text today. Uh, what we're doing uh, this coming summer is we're starting off a new sermon series called, that we are calling Visitation, Encounters with God. And so this is a sermon series that where we're going to be looking through, uh, really doing this broad uh, sweep of Scripture over the next uh, 16 weeks where we're looking at some encounters that God has with his people in Genesis and going all the way through into the New Testament where we see God um, coming to live and dwell among us. And we're seeing so uh, some encounters that Jesus has with uh, uh his people in his day, and then also seeing uh, and, and concluding and looking at uh, the, uh, the Apostle Paul and, and, and an encounter that he had. But what we're going to be doing, so we're, the reason why we're looking at these passages this coming summer is that they, all these passages, all of Scripture really show us what it means to know God. It shows us what it means to meet God. And so if we want to be individuals, if we want to be a church that knows God, that loves God, we need to be formed by Scripture. We need to be formed by God's story. And so some of these texts, like today, are going to be bizarre um, and somewhat intense. And so these, uh, like the text before us, is, uh, it includes what's called a theophany, which literally means an appearance of God. And there's this one writer by the name of Vern Poitras. Uh, he's done a, a, a sweep of Scripture looking at all these different theophanies. It's over 400 pages. And what that simply shows is that there's a lot that we can mine from these passages where God appears uh, to his people. And so we're starting with this text today because this is a a text that really connects to the reality of our everyday life. And so what this means for us is that knowing God means a lot for us in our ordinary life. No matter how extraordinary the story is within Scripture, it's incredibly relevant to um, our ordinary lives. So let's uh, uh, dive into Genesis 15. You can follow along in your worship guide in front of you or on the, the words projected on the wall behind me. This is Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 uh, through 20. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give this land, to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. 
As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring great judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth, fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great, to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that in this time your spirit would be working in our hearts to shape us and to form us by your word so that we uh, can know you. So, Lord, uh, as we are here with our distractions, as we're here with our hurriedness, Lord, we ask that you would meet us and speak to us in this, in this hour. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I remember one time, I, uh, it was a uh, it was a cold month, a cold winter about a year and a half ago, but this, I, I wanted to make some scones. And so I pulled out the family recipe, and I was like, okay, I need flour, I need eggs, I need milk, I need some sugar, I need this and that, some vanilla. And so I start, I'm like, great, I'm ready to make it. I read the directions, I go into the pantry, open up the fridge, and I start pulling everything out. And I even, I like, pulled out the egg, and I cracked it, put it in the bowl, and I was like, oh, I'm missing something. I'm missing flour. I didn't pull it out. Shoot. So I had to go over to the pantry to pull it out, pull out the, the Tupperware container it's, it's supposedly in, open it, it's powdered sugar. Pull out a different Tupperware t container, it's brown sugar. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I don't have any flour. So much for making scones. Like, you cannot have a scone. You cannot have bread without a flour of some sort. And that, that is an essential ingredient. And when it comes to knowing God, the essential ingredient for us to know God is faith. And as we're looking at this text, the, this is the key idea for us, is that we cannot know God without faith. If you're going to meet him, you need faith. If you're going to know God, you need faith. Like, if we're going to grow and change, we need to have faith. So, so in other words, faith is essential for us to have life with God. And so how I want us to really think about this uh, this morning is really, uh, there's three points to uh, today's sermon uh, that I'm entitling Abraham and the Smoking Pot. Just to let you know, the Smoking Pot, it's actually a big deal. But we'll get to that. But this uh, outline for us before, before us today is one, fear, two, faith, and three, assurance. Fear, faith, and assurance. And the, going back to this big idea is that if we're going to have a life with God, then we need faith. This is a challenge for us because we as a people like struggle with faith. We struggle to know God. We struggle to have confidence in him. We struggle to trust him. Because having faith is hard. Every, I, I trust that every single one of you uh, has doubted God at some point in your life. We, as, and like, it doesn't just have to be God. Like our hearts 
are just very anxious. We worry about everything. We are anxious. God knows this. But that is a picture of our hearts. And so to really, uh, and so like this is a challenge for us because we struggle with faith. But also there's a lot of um, confusion there's a lack of clarity in our day and age of what faith really looks like, of what knowing God really looks like. And so this text has a lot to say about faith to us this morning. So we want to think about fear, faith, and assurance here. So let's think about fear first. And we see Abraham's fear very clearly before us in verse 2. Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, Abraham, in saying this here in Genesis 15, has been following God uh, for a number of years. Uh, He's been following God for, uh, some scholars will will go out and say, probably 20 years at this time. Uh, Some say more, some say, say less. But so God, knowing God and following God is not a new thing to Abraham or Abram at this time. But his heart is full of fear, and he's remembering a promise that God made to him earlier. In verse in, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God comes to Abram for the very first time. Abraham, Abram didn't know God at this time. God comes to Abram, meets him, and he says, Go from your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abraham is remembering that promise. He responded to God's call. He left everything he knew to follow God and literally entered into a life of a nomadic life where Abraham actually never had a physical home again for the rest of his life. He just followed God's call. And this, this journey that Abram went on, leaving Ur, he, he went to Egypt, and he encountered trouble in Egypt. And in our text before us, he's, he's in uh, Canaan, where his uh, descendants uh, would eventually be. But so Abraham is coming to God and saying, like, hey, I'm in this place this land that you're promising me, but guess what? I don't have a son, if you haven't noticed this. When I die, my entire estate, all my wealth, everything is going to this guy, Eliezer from Damascus. So, so Abraham is fearful. He is doubting God's word. He is doubting God's promise. He's saying, where is the son that you have promised me? And so here we're seeing fear, We're seeing doubt. We're seeing anxiety. We're seeing a number of emotions that we are all very familiar with, that they are a part of our life. We worry about our kids. We worry about uh, their grades and and how they're doing in school. We even worry about, uh, like, perhaps how we're doing in school. Uh, Like, we worry about so many different things from our health to whether or not we'll get the job that we want, whether or not... um, uh, we will be able to sell a house. We question even and wonder if we can even change. We wonder if we are actually known and loved by God. And at some point, we, we will even question and struggle to trust God. That is a, the picture of our hearts. 
And in fact, when Jesus came uh, and appeared like as he lived and he uh, befriended and had his, his disciples, like these disciples saw him die upon the cross. Then after he died upon the cross, he was resurrected from the grave and he appeared to his disciples. And in Matthew 28, there's this... There's this one verse, it's very, it's very important for us to notice this, but it's, it's just moments before Jesus would ascend to heaven because Jesus appears to all of his disciples and his disciples gather with him one last time. And here's, here's the phrase, and some of them doubted. Like, so, so in other words, these disciples saw Jesus die and come back from the grave and yet they doubted. What this means for us is that doubt is actually a picture of our everyday lives. Doubt is a reality of our lives. And so Abraham is very specifically doubting God's promise. He is doubting God's ability to answer uh, his fear here. And we do the same thing. We doubt God's love for us. And, and earlier this week, I was meeting with um, two pastor friends of mine. Uh, and one of them, uh, Nick Owens, and some of you know him as he preached here a few months ago. But Nick uh, basically uh, said something, and, it, to, and to paraphrase him, he said, he, it goes like this. But he says that if you want to grow, if you want to actually change, then you need to know two things. You need to know that you are loved by God and that he is for you. That you are loved by God since he is your father and that he is for you. And that's a significant thing because we struggle with both of those things. We doubt and we, we, were, we doubt the fact that God actually loves us as our Father. We, we doubt that God is even for us. That is, that is where we are in our fear before God. And so but what, the thing that would be the coldest, the meanest, the harshest, uh, the, the, the wrong response would be for us to simply, is, would be for me to simply tell you, hey, you just need to have more faith. You just need to trust God more. You just need to get over your doubt. You just need to get over and move on from your anxiety. That would be the, the most, the wrong, the wrong, the, the most wrong, wrongest, the worst thing I could say to you. And, but I want to point this out to you. That's not even what God does. God doesn't come to us and say, hey, you've got to get over your doubt. God comes to Abraham. God hears this doubt. And, and, he says, and God says to him the following. And this is, uh, I'm looking. Well, first, I mean, it's actually in verse, uh, verse 1. Uh, God sees Abram's fear. He says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And then he goes on and, and he reiterates the promise. So he's like, I hear you. And I'm, I, I hear your doubt. I hear your fear. But I am your shield. I am your protector. I, in other words, I am for you and I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. And he reminds Abraham. He speaks to him and gives him his word. It's like, I'm going to do this. And so as God comes to Abraham, he, he reassures him. And, and speaks to him and gives him his word. And so, God, and so what we see here is that God comes to us and lets us know that he is for us through his word. We know that God is for us through his word. 
And so one of the things that we need to do as, as a church, as individuals, that if we are going to know that God is for us, that he is our father who loves us, then we need to know in his word. We need to hear him in, in his word. And so as Abraham hears God's word, how does he respond? Well, he responds in faith. And like we see this in uh, verse 6. Verse 6 here. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. What does it mean for us to believe God? Well, simply, it means for us to have uh, faith. Uh, but what is faith? Because as I mentioned uh, earlier, faith is, there's a lot of confusion about what faith is. So what is it? Well, simply put, that faith is where uh, you believe in God to the point that your life is, is changed by him. Faith is where you know God and, and you're, you're changed by him. And there's a difference between uh, having knowledge about God and there's a difference between uh, knowing God. It's one thing uh, for you to say that uh, I know about God in the same way that you might say, hey, I know uh, about cars. Um, it's like that idea of knowledge is, is really um, in the abstract. It's a bunch of data. It's, but knowing, but having faith in God requires knowing. It's about a relationship when we can say that we know one another. And so to say that I know God, yes, it does mean that you know him intellectually, but it also means that you know him uh, personally. But as we see in this text, faith is not a reciprocal relationship with God. It's not where, hey, where God says to Abraham that I'm going to do something for you if you do this for me. No, it's actually where, where that's not it at all. It's not, God comes to Abraham in his doubt. He comes to him in his fear and he says, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I will protect you. Faith is actually when God comes to you first, where you receive his word, where you listen, where you respond, and you are going to be changed by him coming to you and speaking to you. And so Abraham's faith here is actually on display for us to follow. Like, look at this text and how this text describes his faith. Again, that he believed the Lord, and he, being God, counted it to Abraham as righteousness. So in other words, that when you believe in God, your faith is counted to you as righteousness. But what does that mean? That, that, what does that mean? Well, there's this New Testament book, the uh, Romans. It's a great book, Romans 4, verse 3. The Apostle Paul, he's writing this entire book of Romans uh, to the church in Rome. He's, he's explaining the gospel. He's explaining the good news. He's saying this is what it means for you to know God and to be saved by him. And here's the benefits of knowing God. And as... Paul is unpack, explaining this and unpacking this. He quotes this very verse here, Genesis 15, verse 6, in Romans 4, verse 3. And where he says this, um, and this is including verse 2. This is uh, what Paul says, that if Abraham was made right by his works, then he, then Abraham, has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, Paul's point there in Romans 4 is that God counts us as righteous apart from our good works. 
In other words, it's not our good works that make us good, which is, bon- which is very different from how our world, how our culture thinks about things. It's not our, go- our good works that make us good. That's not how, uh, that's not how God uh, takes it's not our performance that makes us perfect before him. It's not our intellect that makes us judged. Uh, excuse me, that makes us just. And now, and, like, we are saved that we, we are saved because God is gracious and good to us. We are saved because we are sinners and God is good to us. We are not saved because we have the right intellectual beliefs. We're not saved because... We have the right uh, uh, morality. We are saved simply because God is good to us sinners. We are sinners, and God is good to us. And so that, that's why we are saved. And so what uh, this verse has to do with, uh, do with all this is that we see that Abraham is actually trusting in God. Abraham believed in the goodness of God to keep his promise. And and. That is why God counted it to Abram as righteous. So in other words, God is the object of Abram's faith. And so as I'm describing this and as like I want you to, to, what I want you to see very clearly is that faith is significant to knowing God. Faith is vital to have life with him. In fact, Jesus at one point says uh, to us, to to, to someone he was talking to, he's like, hey, your faith has made you well. Like, faith is significant and vital to our life. But again, in the, this moment, it's, it's easy uh, for us to just, like, enter into the confusion about faith. Because there are some out there who will say that God wants you to have economic prosperity. You just need to have strong faith. Or that God wants you to have a, a good, uh, healthy, pain-free life. All you need to do is have faith. Like the, those are those two uh, s- teachings right there have devastating consequences because they actually create a sense of guilt and a burden if we do not have a strong faith. That that's deadly, but. That's also reinforcing a fundamental uh, misunderstanding of faith. Because it's, like, we're not saved by the, the quantity of our faith or the quality of it. We're actually saved by the one in whom we put our trust in. So let me pull this together to you um, in the form of an illustration. Like, so this coming week, uh, I'm flying down to Atlanta uh, to participate in this uh, church national uh, committee for our denomination. And so I'm flying to Atlanta, and so I've been preparing for uh, this, this flight pack and, like, pack and just making a lot of preparations. But if any of you ha- have flown before, you, you know uh, the scene I'm about to describe for you. Is that like you're, you're getting on a plane, and you're seeing um, uh, like the, and like the, the, the stewardesses, the flight attendants walk by. They, they, they tell you like, hey, just in case we crash, uh, there's a, here's a life preserver. Uh, just in case you, we crash, there's the exits. Um, th- there'll be times when we encounter turbulence. We'll, the pilot will turn on the don't walk around sign. Like, hey, make sit down and fasten your seatbelts. And like, so as the, the stewardesses and flight attendants are explaining this, you, if you look around, you'll, you'll see some people with a lot of anxiety. And so they'll be like, you know what? I need to take that motion sickness pill. Or, or I have to uh, take like a sleeping pill. Or um, 
you know what, I need a drink just to help calm the nerves. And then you'll see some other people who are just like, I'm not paying attention to the flight attendants whatsoever. So you guys can probably relate if you've flown because like you, you've, you're, you're one of those people I'm describing. You're, perhaps you're the one who's paying attention just in case the plane does go down. You want to know where the exits are. But like in those moments, like it doesn't matter who you are. Like in, in that illustration, because like when you, what, what gets you from, um, what gets you to your final destination? It's the plane and the pilot. Like, like you could be the most anxious person on the flight. You may be the, the calmest person on the flight. What gets you to your destination is the plane and the pilot. And that's how it is uh, for us, is that Jesus is the object of our, of our faith, the one in whom we put our trust. And, and that is significant. It's not the, the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. Like you get home because of the plane and the pilot, not because of your calm confidence. And so what this means for us in our doubt, in our faith, is that this means that you do not have to wait for all your doubts and fears to go away for you to hold on to Christ, to hold on to him with all all your faith. Like, do not make the mistake of thinking that you have to banish all your misgivings, all your anxieties and fears in order to meet God. Because that would actually turn your faith into your Savior. Working on the quality and purity of your commitment would become a way to actually earn salvation, to perform before God, and therefore put God in your debt. It's not the depth or the purity of your heart, but it is the the work of Jesus that saves you. Jesus is the one who saves us, and we are the ones who put our trust in him. And so this is what faith is. Faith is where we trust in God because everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did demands a response from us. And we are called to come before him to confess our inability to rescue ourselves. We need to admit our inability to perform and to put our trust in him. Because when we believe in God, then our lives are going to change God, in fact, counts us as righteous. When we trust in Jesus, the goodness, the beauty of Jesus Christ is given to us. Like there, there's this verse, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, in 5, that says that he who knew no sin, in, others, in other words, Jesus, became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived and died so that we would become the righteousness of God. And so God counts us of righteous, as righteous because he is a good and he is a loving father. But guess what? He actually goes a step further. And this leads, it brings us to assurance. And we see God assuring uh, Abraham. And this is where the story gets really bizarre. Uh, so God, this is beginning really in... Uh, early, in verse 9, where God tells Abraham to bring a heifer, three years old, a ram, three years old, a goat, and a turtle, dove, and pigeon. Bring these uh, animals. And so Abraham then kills them. Um, he, he, does, he, pulled, he kills them. There's, there, there's carcasses. We're not really told what, like how he lays them out, but he lays them out. And so this is where the story gets really bizarre. Abraham falls asleep, and God speaks to him. 
And as God speaks, after God speaks to him, a smoking pot passes through the carcasses, the, the bodies of these animals lying around. And, and, but to grasp this, right now we need to know more about what goes on in the ancient world and how uh, people would make contracts with one another. And because within the ancient world, there were different ways that people would make contracts with one another. Like, for example, kings would uh, make a contract with uh, uh, their people. Uh, these uh, treaties were, uh, were called suzerain vassal treaties. But they would say, hey, if you do this, I will do this for you. If you're uh, obedient um, uh, subjects, I will protect you. If you are going to rebel against me, I will crush you. Like those type of things. Uh, which, and you kind of need that type of uh, contract in, some, in the government um, in their, that time. And, but then there, are, there were other types of contracts. And so like uh, this type of contract, uh, th- these actions before us actually show us that, uh, an, of another type of contract. And like, for example, what would happen is that just that what Abraham's doing is that you're killing these animals, you're laying them down. And, but you, what would happen next is that basically, uh, you, as you would pass by these carcasses, you'd basically say, hey, if I breach the terms of our, uh, and conditions of our agreement, let me be like these animals. And both parties would do that. The, like the, the buyer, the seller, like, er, like both parties would walk by. But what's unique about our text is that God is actually the only one passing through this in, in the smoking pot. So in other words, God up to this point is saying like, hey, Abraham, I hear your doubt. I I hear your fear. I am your shield. I am your protector. I love you. I am for you. I'm I'm going to deliver. Abraham believes that. But God goes a step further and he says, like, and by, by what everything's going on right here in the smoking pot passing by, God is actually saying that, and if I don't, let me be like these dead animals. Like God is giving Abram a visible sign that assures him of his faith. This is, this, this is very vivid uh, to Abram. And so... And this sign is meant to assure him of God's goodness. It's meant to restore confidence in God's promises. And I know that some of you struggle with, the assur- uh, with assurance more than others. And I know this because uh, this is uh, something that we've talked about. But, some, but the reality is that every single one of us doubt God in different degrees throughout our life. And so we struggle to, to be assured of God's love. And I want to remind all of us, myself included here, that doubt is normal. It is a part of our everyday lives. We doubt the good, beautiful news that God is our loving Father who is for us. We doubt that he is our friend, in fact. And so while God gives Abraham a sign uh, of a smoking pot, uh, he actually gives us a sign. He gives us his word. He speaks to us. We have this wonderful uh, news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for us. We have God's uh, word. But we also have a constant sign that God, of what God has done for us. And that is actually in the Lord's Supper that we'll be partaking of in a few moments. And, like, and, I'll, expl- and I'll explain it uh, th- 
I won't explain it now. I'll explain, I'll explain it right now. But like, because in our Lord's Supper, like when I pick up the bread, like we're told that this is the body of Christ that is broken for you. Take and eat. This is the blood of Christ that is poured out for forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. And Jesus says, as long as you do this, you will proclaim my death. And so what we have in the Lord's Supper, it is a visible demonstration of the good news for us. It is a sign of God's love uh, for us. And so we have this sign of, that is meant to assure us of God's love for us. That, and that this is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single week. Because we need that sign. We need that assurance in our faith. Because uh, we struggle with doubt. And uh, in the 15th century, one writer, uh, St. John of the Cross, he, he uh, used a phrase, uh, the dark night of the soul. And the dark, dark night represents the hardships and the pain that we encounter on the way to, uh, to meet God. Because, like, we go through immense uh, uh, periods of darkness in our life. And we as a culture, and within the larger culture, like, actually, we, we are told, and to one degree or another, that uh, these negative emotions are a bad thing. But St. John of the Cross was like, actually, these dark periods can actually be beautiful times where we can meet God. But, like, let me just think about the, the, where we are as a culture, and then come back to St. John of the Cross. It's like, so as a culture, we glamorize these positive emotions, even dismissing uh, uh, negative emotions. Like, saying, like, hey, there's no purpose for these in our life, so let's try to hide them, let's try to suppress them. But that's not good whatsoever. Um, and here's one illustration that really helps us understand that like these negative emotions can actually be very powerful and transformative for us. Uh, if you've seen the movie Inside Out, it's a Pixar movie. It's a great movie. You should see it. But the, the characters of the movie are actually the, the emotions uh, within a, uh, a child's mind. Uh, what's going on in the child's life uh, is that, let's say, she's from Canada. I think Michigan, someplace. But she's from a place where they play ice hockey, where they have, uh, like, your typical Midwestern American food. And her, her dad gets a job in San Francisco. So they move to San Francisco, where they don't have ice hockey, and where they have, like, broccoli on pizza. Like, who eats those type of things? And, and so, like, we're seeing uh, what's going on in her life through the emotions in, 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 inside her, her head. And so, like, the, these emotions, you have joy, you have disgust, you have anger, there's um, something else. Uh, there's sadness. And so, like, really, like, her dominant emotion throughout the, her entire life before moving has been joy. And she's struggling to process moving across the country. And so, like, uh, and so, like, really there's this competition going on between these emotions where joy wants to be the dominant emotion. Where, and, like, but, and she's like, hey, joy's always trying to dismiss sadness and even saying, what use do you have here? But actually, uh, things uh, keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until the moment where sadness actually is allowed to express the fullness of, of just the, sad, the sadness. And, like, and so this child mourns uh, the fact that her home's gone, she lost all her friends and so forth. And, but through expressing sadness, like this, this little girl's life completely changes. Like, she's transformed. And my point with this is that the fullness of our emotions are actually given to us by God, and we need to express those. And when we go through these dark times of the soul, we need to express them because that it's, 
in those moments that something powerful can come into our hearts. Something powerful can happen in our lives. There's this one guy, John Newton. Uh, John Newton, uh, he w- was an Anglican minister and hymn writer. If you know the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, he's the guy who wrote it. And so John uh, Newton, as he, uh, as he ministered, he had this one uh, friend of his, uh, William Cowper. And, and William Cowper had a lifelong uh, struggle with uh, depression. He had a mental illness. And uh, you can look at the details of his life because there are some very dark times in his life. And so John was not uh, a foreign, uh, he was not a stranger to uh, just the, the darkness in our life. In fact, he faithfully loved his friend William Cowper well and, and, and more. And John Newton wrote this, is that like in, in, in all our circumstances, no matter how deep the, the dark nights of the soul are, we can have assurance, and these are uh, Newton's words. Assurance grows by repeated conflict, by our repeated experimental proof of the Lord's power and the goodness to save when we have been brought very low and helped, sorely wounded and healed, cast down and raised again, have given up all hope and been suddenly snatched from danger and placed in safety. And when these things have been repeated to us and in us a thousand times over and over and over again, we begin to learn to trust simply the word and the power of God beyond and against all appearances and all circumstances. And this trust, one habitual and strong, bears the name of assurance, for even assurance has degrees. See, Newton's point is this, is that when we have our dark times, the dark nights of the soul, that is when we are going to experience the power of God's power to save us. Because it's when we hold on to God, it's when we hold on to God, it's in those darkest times of our life, a light will appear. In our lowest points, that is when we will feel picked up. When we've lost all hope, God speaks to us and delivers us and saves us. Because God is our loving Father who loves us and who is for us. That is what we see God. This is how God is revealed to us in this passage. Where he is a loving Father to Abram and he is for him and he is even a friend uh, to him. And that is who God is for us as well. And so friends, perhaps you're here today and you're exploring who God is. Let me encourage you to, to believe in him. God is beautiful and loving, and he is a father who cares for you, and he is for you. And you will find that as you know God, you will find that he knows you, and he loves you. He loves you knowing everything that you have done and left undone, and he is still for you. And perhaps some of you are here today, and you're struggling, um, wondering even if you are a Christian. Well, friends... In those moments, hold on close, more tightly to Jesus because he is the one who saves you. It is, not, it is not the quality of your faith. It is Jesus that saves you. And so if you're wondering about your salvation, it is Jesus that saves. And so all of us, let me end on this, all of us need to know that God is a loving Father who is for us. And that is the good news of this text. Let's pray.